Good morning, Sun West, to those to those on site and also to those online. <clears throat> Woo, going through puberty here. <clears throat> it's good to be with you guys. And uh, how many of you guys uh, watched that sports game last night? Anybody know what sports game I'm talking about? NCAA? No. Tar Heels Duke. Oh, this, it's like crickets in here. I knew I knew it would be. I was. Uh, I was like debating, do I talk about something that nobody knows what I'm talking about? Uh, yes, because I'm a Tar Heels fan, and uh, you know we're in the middle of March Madness, which is basketball. It's a, I don't know if you guys know that sport, but uh, anyways, it's, uh, uh, they were taking on their rivals, Duke, and uh, they won in the semifinals going to the championship game on Monday night, so this is really, really exciting. I, uh, I got a Tar Heels jersey uh, that I got in grade 10. Uh, that my grade 10 girlfriend bought for me, and, uh, and, uh, but it's triple XL, so it didn't fit me in grade 10, it doesn't fit me now, so I, if it fit me, I'd probably be wearing it this morning, but uh, anyway, so I'm celebrating that, um, and you do you, I don't, you know, it's whatever, uh, it's a good time for me, uh, but I encourage you to tune in on Monday night, uh, but that's not why we're here, Shalom Project, we've been talking about uh, Shalom for quite a number of weeks, uh, and I believe we're on week 12 here, uh, talking about shalom with, uh, with the world. Uh, and uh, we're, we're kind of moving uh, from this uh, into our Easter uh, weekend. Uh, and so the Easter weekend kind of culminates. It's kind of going to bring a climax to this focus that we've been talking about, shalom, that God had a, uh, is, is in the process of reconciling the world to himself. Uh, and his, his plan, his shalom project, uh, right at the center of that plan, the climax of that plan was what he accomplished on the cross through his death and through his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Uh, and so we look forward to kind of looking at that more deeply uh, in the upcoming weeks. And as Colton mentioned, we have Good Friday service at 10 a.m. and then Easter Sunday at 9 and 11. Uh, and so again, uh, because I know that not everyone has been with us every week, just a really quick recap. Shalom is a Hebrew word, not an English word, but it means the harmony of things, uh, the peace of all things as God intended them to be. We see a picture of that in the Garden of Eden. We see a picture of that at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation uh, where uh, God uh, is living at peace with, where man is living at peace with God, uh, with, uh, with themselves, being confident in who they are, who God created them to be in relationships with other human beings, other image bearers of God, uh, and then uh, being, uh, living in the right place in the created order with the rest of the world, with the rest of creation. Uh, because of sin, uh, and sin is the word uh, that isn't an, you know, it's an English word, but it's not a common word that people don't, don't talk about much. Uh, but the Bible uh, names sin as the reason uh, that these relationships were fractured and broken. Uh, uh, but God didn't give up on his creation project. He's still in the, the process of bringing things uh, back together. And that starts with us. But sin is, sin is basically the word uh, that describes shalom breaking. Uh, And so sin can describe us breaking shalom with God, with ourselves, with others, uh, with the world. And so sin is a very broad definition. Uh, And even if you talk to people that aren't of faith, uh, what I find very fascinating, especially in the last couple of years, people that don't uh, profess to have a Christian faith or any type of faith at all will still articulate and express that something has gone wrong in the world. Something is not right in the world. Uh, And it's a fascinating statement because that is a statement of faith. It's a statement of belief. It's a statement of conviction. Uh, It's a a statement of a type of vision 
that they have, that things should be better, that things should look better, that should, there should be a greater level of reconciliation and peace. Uh, and what, what are they talking about? They're, they're talking about this need, this fundamental need that our world has and that we have and that they have to experience and live in shalom. Uh, the Bible calls this picture uh, the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus describes it. He uses the name the kingdom of God to, to, to describe this type of kingdom, this type of reality. We're going to get to that a little bit later this morning. Uh, but when we refer to the world, the world can mean three things when we look at the Bible. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at these more specifically. But very briefly, the world can mean creation. Uh, and, and we see the world used in the Bible in a positive sense and a negative sense. Jesus talks about not being of the world. Uh, but uh, he also talks about uh, how he came to save the world. And so, uh, so how do those two uh, exist? Well, the word world means multiple things. And so in the positive sense, world can mean creation, nature. Uh, the world, in the positive sense, can mean humanity, people. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever, whichever humans believe in him. Uh, and, and so uh, Jesus is describing, in the positive sense, the world, the created world, humanity in, um, in terms of the world. Uh, and this morning, we're going to continue talking about uh, the world in the third sense, which is corporate flesh. Uh, and so the world is what happens when a lot of people give in to their flesh, their animalistic desires. And uh, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about this. He uses the term flesh a lot, but other biblical writers use this term as well. And, and so again, the flesh is our primal animalistic drive. Uh, it's, it's a me-centered desire. It, 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 it elevates our pleasure, our power, our, our self-interest above all things. Uh, and so that's the desire of our flesh, right? So that's different than our bodies. So, so Paul has a different word for bodies, the word soma. Uh, that's our physical bodies. But when he's talking about our flesh, it's these carnal desires within our bodies, our animal desires. And so the, those desires aren't necessarily evil in and of themselves, but left unchecked, left unsubmitted to God and his design for our desires, they can become very destructive. They can be destructive for us, uh, but they can be destructive for others and the world itself. Uh, you know, I know many of you didn't watch the basketball game last night, but uh, how many of you saw the highlight? Uh, was it from the Oscars? It tells you what I... The Oscars? Anybody see that, what happened at the Oscars? Uh, you know, when uh, Will Smith uh, got up and hit Chris Rock in the face. I, wasn't wa- I, I didn't watch the Oscars, uh, but I heard about it immediately. I was like, did you see what happened? Uh, I even had someone at SunWest tell me, uh, when Will Smith went up and hit Chris Rock in the face, it reminded me of your sermon where you talked about hitting people in the face. And so it's nice to know that my preaching reminds you of uh, this cataclysmic uh, low moment in the life of Will Smith in the entertainment industry. But so this, this moment... Uh, it's a fascinating moment, and you watch it kind of spin out in a whole bunch of directions, right? And uh, you're paying attention on social media and news feeds, and uh, uh, it's, it's everywhere. And people giving their two cents and their opinions on, uh, you know, should Will Smith have done it? Should he have done something else? And uh, it should be the end of Will Smith's career and, and, and all of these things. And, I, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into that, but uh, I don't really have many opinions on Will Smith's career, to be honest. But uh, what I found interesting was his, his apology 
Uh, and so he had this moment uh, where he responds, and, and his wife Jada was made fun of by Chris Rock, uh, and he took offense to that and walks up on stage and hits uh, Jada, or not Jada, uh, that would be uh, another step. Uh, he hits Chris Rock uh, in the face and then proceeds to you know, yell some expletives at Chris Rock from, from his seat, uh, and clearly reacting and offended uh, and trying to deal with uh, what's going on in, in some kind of tangible way. And so it manifests itself in that moment in that way. Uh, and then he, get, he would get up later when he won an Oscar and, and give an apology. And then he would uh, go on to actually write an apology. Um, and I don't want to read the whole apology, but there's one line in the apology that, that caught my attention. He said, uh, I'm embarrassed and my actions were not indicative of the man I want to be. There is no place for violence in a world of love and kindness. And so Will articulates something that I think for many of us, for all of us, in some moment in our lives, we could kind of use that same line, copy and paste. Right? That there was a moment where I acted and I responded in a way that is not indicative of the man or woman that I desire to be. And so what's happening in that moment? Well, Paul talks about this, and he talks about this being the flesh, that we have strong desires and that we have deep desires, that our strongest desires aren't the same thing as our deepest desires, that, that there's ways that we act, there's impulses that we have that aren't actually in alignment to the type of world or the type of people we ultimately desire to be. But they're at war with, they're at, those things are at war with each other. Paul contrasts this by talking about uh, living by the flesh or living by the spirit. Living by the flesh is living in line with their strong animalistic desires and living by the flesh or living by the spirit is living in alignment with their deepest desires, the desires that God would have for us. And so in that moment, Chris is saying, or Will is saying that uh, there's a deeper desire that I have to be a kind of person. That moment, I acted outside of that. Paul himself actually says the exact same thing. Uh, And if you have time, I would encourage you to read his thoughts in Romans 7, Romans 8. It's a long section, and he's talking about uh, the, the war that he has with the flesh versus living by the Spirit, these strong desires and impulses versus these deep desires. And so Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual. This is Romans 7, 14, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, God's good law. He's referring to uh, his righteous law. Uh, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. We see this inner turmoil in the life of Paul. He's saying, I have these deep desires, and then when I try and live it out, I try and do the right thing, I do the things I don't want to do. And I don't do the things I want to do. I don't live in line with my deepest desires. And so Paul refers to that as living by the flesh, this battle with the flesh, this battle with our strong animalistic desires 
that can hijack us in any moment and kind of detour us from the life that we would like to live. He contrasts that, if you go on to read, he contrasts that in in Romans chapter 8 with living by the Spirit, living in step with our deepest desires, which is in step with the Holy Spirit, which is in step with God, God's heart, God's mind, God's dream for our lives and this world. And so Will Smith didn't know it, but he was basically quoting the Apostle Paul. And, and we, can, we can throw him aside and, and say, you know, death to Will Smith, that should be the end of his career. And like I said, I don't want to give opinions on that. Uh, but I just acknowledge that in that moment, I saw myself. I saw the Apostle Paul. I, I see humanity in general who is at war with what they want and the way that they live. Uh, and so in the scriptures, when it talks about the world, uh, in the positive sense, it's creation and humanity, but in the negative sense, it's talking about corporate flesh. So what happens is uh, you take this battle with the flesh that we as individuals all face, all try and sort out and work through, uh, but then we live in families, in communities, in cities, in provinces, in nations, together, and this flesh, this battle with the flesh, actually starts to take on a life of its own. It starts to uh, implement itself into culture, into systems, into philosophy, into ideology. And so it's, it's not just a battle in our inner self anymore. It's actually a battle that we're battling outside of ourselves and the culture and society at large. And so the world is what happens when a lot of people give into their flesh and their base animalistic desires, and these things start to become normalized uh, in our culture. So what happens is that we create structures in this world to protect ourselves from our flesh. We create structures, we create communities, we create institutions, but ironically, what we create to protect ourselves from the flesh uh, in turn also end up serving this corporate flesh. So you think of law and order. You think of traditions, social, social conventions. You think of governance and the way that we organize ourselves. These are created to protect us from being overrun by our flesh. You think of militaries and borders. These are intended to protect us from the flesh and the evil that is out there. We create police forces and legal systems and punishments for those who violate certain laws. And these are intended to protect us from the evil and the flesh that is within ourselves and around us. But these systems that we actually put out as boundaries, as protections for ourselves, are not, uh, they can themselves become corrupt. They, those systems themselves can actually take on flesh. Those systems they sell, themselves can serve the animalistic desires of humanity instead of the deep desires of the spirit. And so what we create in order to protect us or help us, can actually in turn begin to hurt us. And and this is part of what Jesus is talking about when he refers to the world as corporate flesh. We intuitively grasp that to live our best life, we must be protected from our flesh in some kind of way. And so we create these systems in our world. uh, But then we get surprised that these systems actually begin to hurt us back. And so a cycle emerges in our nations, in our cultures, our places, and even in our religions, uh, that at some point, what we assumed was going to help us begins to hurt us. These systems take on a life of their own, and they begin to go rogue, and they become destructive. 
rather than protective. And we can see the cycle of this throughout history. This is not new. And so there's no denying that we are currently right now living in a disorienting time. Things are being shaken. Things don't feel like they ought to. But this cycle that we're experiencing, uh, I'm sorry to break it to you, is nothing new. The cycle that we have been a part of has been a part of every era in human history. Every era of human history has been marked by struggle, been marked by chaos, been marked by wars, been marked by pandemics and sickness. And part of the reason that we feel so shaken up and disoriented is because of an implicit, an implicit assumption that we as a culture, as a society, have actually bought into. There's a lie that we've actually bought into. And the church on its own in the West has baptized that lie. And here's the lie. The assumption is that we will increasingly move towards a new era in human history where we can, they, we wouldn't call it this, but the Bible does live in shalom, that we can make it happen. We'll, we'll arrive in this area of, at this time of post-conflict, an era which will gently slide toward the future, and the future is going to be more diverse. It's going to be more tolerant. We'll have more connection. More technology is going to help us have greater cooperation. As the world becomes more and more globalized, we'll, uh, this wonderful future will increasingly come into the present. You know, this lie uh, actually began, began in the 18th century. And in philosophy, it's, it's referred to as the time of the Enlightenment. And so in the Enlightenment, uh, which was which when you marry uh, what was happen, happening in philosophy to what was happening actually in the world and, and development, uh, it was the belief that advances in science and knowledge and exploration would further help us become greater human beings. It was this belief that human hands alone could create the social, and, uh, the social dimensions that the shalom picture of Scripture talks about, that the kingdom of God talks about. Uh, Immanuel Kant was a, a philosopher and a key figure in the time of the Enlightenment, and he dreamed of a community of nations that would adhere to global laws and international cooperation, leading to a new golden period on earth of perpetual peace. And the thought was, we would just, over time, become better and better as people, as societies, as cultures, as nations, as communities, that everyone would begin to get along and that we could bring about shalom on our own. This faith and this optimism would be disrupted in the 20th century by World War I. And if there was any optimism left after World War I, there, there was World War II, uh, which happened and would bring about uh, you know, millions of deaths and Nazi camps and everything else that happened in World War II. Uh, and so it became impossible after World War II to ignore the dark potential of human nature. And this period of time is referred to as postmodernism. And so the Enlightenment was kind of in line with modernism, uh, that you know, the scientific uh, development, technological development was going to give a, bring us to in a new era, that we're going to experience this peace on earth, that everything was going to get better, then the world wars happened, and then People started not believing in that anymore, and so they moved into this postmodern world uh, where we didn't know anything for sure anymore. 
But what's happened since World War II is time has gone on. Modernism gave birth to postmodernism, and if you paid attention at all to what's happening in the train of thought in our culture over the last few decades, uh, the interpretation of history is actually starting to change, and that what was wrong in history was institutions and systems, and the people that were in power were evil. Postmodernism is actually about breaking down uh, systems of power, because the thought is that that's wrong, that that's what's bad, that's what's wrong with the world. And so if we can break it all down, hence cancel culture, if we can just destroy it all, uh, then finally uh, we can actually get on to living at peace and shalom with one another again. And so we've actually come full circle and back to this lie of the enlightenment that we will be able to find for ourselves this perfect, peaceful existence once we just destroy and deconstruct everything. We're now a few generations removed from World War II. And so we've began to lose sight of their understanding and their view that the people had in that time of human nature. Uh, my, great gran- or my grandpa on my one side uh, drove a tank in World War II, uh, and he died a couple of decades ago. You know, I wasn't smart enough as a kid to think, maybe I should ask my grandpa about you know, what his thoughts on the world. You know, if I could go back now, I would. My great-grandma uh, was a refugee uh, that was escaping Nazi Germany a- as a refugee into Canada. And so those stories, even within my own family, are three to four generations ago. I am out of touch with that, those personal experiences that people lived through at that time. We have very few of those people in those stories that exist now, and we've become more and more disconnected from our own history and more susceptible to believing these lies again, that we'll just be able to figure it out and find our own way to shalom. Mark Sayers is a, uh, he's a pastor in Australia, and uh, he's an incredible thought leader, cultural thinker. He's written a number of books, uh, and I was listening to an interview with him uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and, and he actually used an analogy, and he said, uh, we've been on a cruise ship for a few decades. Uh, and he used this analogy of the cruise ship. We've been entertained. We, we started to think that you know, life on this cruise ship was reality. And we've forgotten that the cruise ship was actually man-made, that the cruise ship itself sits on an untamable ocean, in an ocean that is more powerful than maybe we remember. Uh, and his thesis, uh, which, which I agree with, w- was that he said the reason that many of us are feeling out of control and disoriented in these days is a large part due to the fact that we have forgotten about nature. What we're experiencing in the last two to three years is simply the return of nature. It's the return of nature. It's the actually realization, many of us, for the first time that we're not in control. It's a realization that we're not as powerful as we think we are. Uh, It's a realization that most people in history have known intuitively intuitively that we have forgotten uh, that we actually can't control nature in the physical creation sense. We're being reminded these days that we can't control nature, that we 
cannot just make creation do whatever we want it to do and to serve ourselves. And there's actually a point that uh, uh, it doesn't do that. It doesn't agree and play with us nicely. Uh, we're, ex- we're experiencing the return of nature in that sense, but we're also experiencing the return of human nature. We're being reminded that, na- that human nature, that there is something fleshly and evil within human nature. And I just want to remind you that, you know, the being the series we talked about being created in the image of God, which is also true, uh, that we as human beings are, are, are created uh, to reflect God's image. And there is goodness and beauty in humanity for sure. But there is a part of us, the flesh part of us, that deceives us. Uh, there was a documentary a number, number of years ago uh, called The Grizzly Man. I don't know if any of you guys saw this documentary. Anybody remember this? Um, I heard about it. I actually didn't, I didn't watch it, but I, uh, I heard my friends talk about it that, that watched it. And uh, there's a guy, the main character in the documentary, Timothy, uh, was going to Alaska every summer for 13 summers in Katmai National Park. Uh, and so he would go live, and there's a huge grizzly population in that national park, and he would go live among the grizzlies, make his home among the grizzlies every summer for 13 years. In 2003, uh, he was camping uh, with his girlfriend, Amy, and he usually left the park at the end of summer, uh, but he stayed that year into October, and this put him and Amy at even greater risk uh, because during this period, bears are getting ready for hibernation, and so they're searching for food and they're storing up calories um, and getting ready for, for that time of hibernation. Uh, the person who was kind of documenting this offered his interpretation of the events because what would happen is in, in October that year, uh, when Timothy and his girlfriend stayed in the national park, uh, the grizzlies, who they thought were their friends, and they were living among them, they were petting them, they were talking to them, um, turned on them and devoured them. And, you, and you're thinking, yeah, no kidding. Uh, bright idea. Go hang out with grizzlies for the summer. Uh, so the, the, the person who kind of documented all this and went through all the video footage, there's hundreds of hours of video footage, uh, he concluded uh, that Timothy had a sentimental view of, this is his words, had a sentimental view of nature thinking he could tame the wild bears. He notes that the nature that nature is cold and harsh, and that in his view, Timothy clouded his thinking, and this led him to underestimate the danger that he was living in. I think it's an incredible picture of where we find ourselves at this point in history. That we have a as a culture, as a worldly society, as a system, have believed a certain lie. It's appealed to our flesh, you know, that we're great, that we're awesome, that, you know, we can be anything, do anything. Uh, and as we've bought into that lie, we have forgotten the danger of human nature. We have forgotten what Paul refers to as the flesh. We've been living with grizzly bears for years, and we assume that we've tamed them, that we've tamed ourselves, that we're going to be progressively getting better. Uh, and then, the last two years happen, and everybody's scratching their head thinking, what's going on in the world? What's wrong with the world? Well, perhaps what we're experiencing is what the world throughout all of history is experiencing, that, there's, that we can't control nature. 
So when we ask the question, what is wrong with the world? We are asking a question that people have been asking for all of history. In fact, in 1910, uh, G.K. Chesterton, I've used this story a number of times, but G.K. Chesterton responded to the London Times, and the London Times requested responses for their paper uh, with the prompt, what is wrong with the world? And so they're looking for people to submit uh, responses and articles for that question. You know, so this is just leading up into World War I, and so the world was at a, a very volatile place again. So people are like, what's wrong with the world? Chester's, Chesterton's response to that question, uh, his essay was simply, Dear Sirs, I am... I am what is wrong with the world. Now, I've mentioned that story a number of times because I think it's so simple but yet so profound and aligns with what we see Jesus and Paul and the other biblical writers teaching us. That the human temptation is to point our finger out there and say there's something out there that's wrong with the world and once that thing gets fixed, once that system gets fixed, once that society, once, that, once the government, once we tweak these things, and we fail to realize that all of these systems, all of these things that have been created, uh, we've actually created them ourselves, uh, and they begin to take on human nature as a whole system, which the Bible refers to as the world. And so when we ask what's wrong with the world, if we want to answer that from a biblical point of view, Paul and Jesus and the other writers would say that human nature, our flesh, is what's wrong with the world. Our desire to be the kings of our own kingdom, our desire to do whatever we want, our desire to, our propensity to believe a lie that if we are in power, if we are in control, if we get our own way, then everything will go better. And so what is Jesus' solution to the question, what is wrong with the world? Well, his solution is the kingdom of God. And if you read the letters of Paul, Paul talks about living by the Spirit. He doesn't talk about the kingdom of God. If you, if you read uh, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they refer to Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. Matthew refers to Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven. All of these things, all these realities, they're talking about the same thing. The kingdom of God is what Jesus preached. This was the theme of his life. This was the theme of his ministry. And he invited everyone to participate in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God literally means the reign of God. If you want to translate it from the Greek, it literally means the reign of God. So what Jesus calls the reign of God, the kingdom of God, Paul calls living by the Spirit. But the invitation to humanity, to you and I, is both the same, is that we need to be led. We need to humble ourselves. We need to actually submit to ourselves to God who is greater than us, God who knows better than us, Jesus who invites us to follow him and live as he lived. These are put up, uh, the kingdom of God, living by the Spirit, these things are put up in contrast to the kingdoms of the world or living by flesh. And so when you think about what's happening in our world right now, what's happening in culture and society, what we see is that people want the life of the kingdom of God without the king. We want the life of the kingdom without the king. And Jesus is very clear that the kingdom life that he's describing only comes under the reign of God, under the kingship of God. 
And so a few scriptures as we, as we ponder this. In, in John 18, Jesus said, my kingdom, his kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus is saying his kingdom isn't found within the systems of this world. It's not going to be established by better governments, better policies. Uh, it's not going to be established by uh, better technology and better advancements on earth that we create as humans. His kingdom actually doesn't come about through those means. It's not of this world. It comes from another place. And so sometimes we've been led to read that. It's not from another place, meaning, well, uh, he's saying that his kingdom is not here on earth. It's somewhere else. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's saying that the, his kingdom doesn't come from the systems of this world. It comes from a different type of system, a different type of realm. So we have to ask the question, is the kingdom, kingdom coming or is the kingdom here? And Jesus' answer to that question is yes, it's both. There's a coming kingdom that will fully be realized at the return of Christ, uh, but that kingdom is already breaking in today. Anywhere and everywhere the reign of God exists, the kingdom of God exists. So when we as individuals submit to the reign of God, we are living in the kingdom of God. In Matthew 4, Jesus says, Jesus invited people to be part of the kingdom. He said, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the word repent basically means to change your thinking, to change your mind, to think in a new way. And even as followers of Jesus, we have the temptation to not change our thinking, but just try and keep thinking the way we've always been thinking, but try harder to see shalom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying we have to actually change the entire way that we think, the things that we assume. Uh, in Romans 12, it says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you are going to be a part of the kingdom, if you're going to live under the reign of God, it means that there's a, new, there's a different way of thinking and engaging then our world engages in the way that our world thinks. So when Jesus came on the scene and he's preaching the kingdom of God, when Paul is talking about living by the Spirit, you know, they're talking to Jews and they're talking to Greeks. Uh, and next week we're going to look more at the, the political religious climate that, the, that Jesus uh, came in. Uh, but from a high level right now, he, he's talking to uh, Jews, Greeks, to Romans. But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is addressing Jews and uh, Greeks, and he identifies why many of them are missing out on living in the kingdom of God. Listen to this. He says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so as he's speaking to the Jews, the Jews at this point in history, are a group of oppressed people that believe that they're the people of God, 
that their God is the true God, but yet they're living under Roman rule, under a leader who claims to be God himself, and it seems unjust, it doesn't seem right. And so they're under Roman, the Roman thumb. They're being oppressed. And their question is, where is the power of God? When's God going to show up and fix it? And then you have the Greeks who are known for their education. They're very learned people. They, they talk about philosophy. They, they sat around and talked about ideas. And they were trying to unlock the mystery of what was happening in the world. And they're looking for the truth. Where's the right idea? Where's the philosophy? How do we know what's real? How do we know what's true? And so Paul says, in reference to the Jews, that Jesus Christ is actually a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because they were looking and expecting God to show up in power in the worldly sense. That God was going to show up within the systems of the world, within the ways of the world, and the kingdom was going to be part of the world, and they were going to, and, and God was going to show up and oust the Romans. And he said, Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because they're looking for power in a certain frame, in a certain way, in a worldly view. And they missed it. They didn't recognize the kingship of Jesus because it didn't look like they thought it would. And then he says to the Greeks that they're looking for, you know, the smartest philosophy, the truth, the, the, the idea that's going to unlock everything and make sense of the world. Uh, and Christ is also foolishness to them. And they've missed it. They've missed the beauty and the genius of what Jesus has done uh, because it looks like foolishness. Why? Because of the cross. Because the cross, from a worldly view, looks like the anti-power. It looks like defeat. It looks like uh, the opposite of what our world says it means to be powerful, to be in charge. And the Greeks look at the cross and they think that's just foolishness. How does that make any sense? How can you bring about goodness and peace? How can a leader who's going to suffer and die and, and die all alone actually, be, uh, actually hold the idea of, of what true peace and shalom looks like? Christ to the Jews is the power of God, but he looks like foolishness. Christ to the Greeks is the wisdom of God, but it looks like foolishness. God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. Gentiles, Greeks. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength, as the Jews understood it. And so both the Jews and Greeks had their paradigms, their worldly paradigms, that they were kind of looking for God to show up in, and they missed it. And Paul is challenging them. You know, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. See everything in a new way. If you see what God is doing through the cross, you'll realize that there's a different realm, that his kingdom's not of this world. It's coming from a different place. And then in Matthew 16, when Jesus is inviting uh, people to follow him, he said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, and the word disciple means to mimic, to imitate. Um, and the reason why discipleship is such a, a major theme for Jesus is because it's through discipleship that we participate in the kingdom of God. It's through following Jesus that we participate in the reign of God. And so there's no... There's no way to participate in his reign without actually following him with our lives. 
And that's why Jesus never invites us just to respond to God by inviting him into our heart and saying a prayer. Uh, That might be the beginning of a relationship, but he invites us to respond to God by giving him our very lives. And so Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must deny their flesh. Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me will find it. See, Jesus didn't come just to be our savior and to save us. He actually came to be our king. And when we participate in the reign of God, we are saved because we're part of his kingdom. But we can't separate that salvation from his kingship. they're, They're a part of the same package. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will endure. In Revelation 11, it says that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of God. It's looking into the future and saying that there's something happening. That one day, every kingdom on earth will fail. Every way of thinking will be made to look foolish. That the kingdom of God, the reign of God, will endure forever. And if you want to be a part of that kingdom, if you want to live in that kingdom today, Jesus says you need to take up your cross and follow him. And to us, it might look like foolishness. To the world, it might look like foolishness. But the kingdom is, part of the, is not part of this world. And so to live in the reign of God, we actually mimic and imitate Jesus in the way that we live. See, Jesus didn't just go to the cross so that we didn't have to. Jesus was actually demonstrating what, how to access true life in the kingdom of God, which is to die to ourself, to pick up our cross, to die to ourself, to do what Jesus did, and to bend his knee to God the Father and say, not your will be done, but not my will be done, but your will be done. And as we follow him, as we mimic him, as we become disciples of him, and we die to our own ideas, we die to our own flesh, our own need for power, our own need to be right, but we take on the humble nature of a disciple, of a servant, of someone who's willing to go and to do and to be whatever our king asks, we begin to live life in the kingdom. But it will look, look, it will look very, very different than the kingdoms of this world. Jesus' followers are citizens for and of another kingdom. It is a kingdom that will be fully realized in the future at the return of Christ. But as disciples of Jesus today in this world, we're invited to live as citizens of that kingdom now. We choose to live as citizens of that kingdom today. The future in the now. Heaven on earth now. The world wants a kingdom without a king. And we'll keep going around the cycle that we have for all of human history when people try and experience the kingdom of God without the king. And we'll find ourselves disappointed. We'll find ourselves disoriented. We'll find ourselves keep coming back to the question of what's wrong with the world uh, until we come to grips with the answer that Jesus gives that G.K. Chesterton articulated What's wrong with the world is actually in the human heart. And Jesus' response was not just to, uh, to, the, to that problem, was not just to restrain and try and restrict our flesh. It was actually to crucify our flesh so that we might truly live. And so maybe you're someone this morning who is feeling that anxiety, that disorientation, the fear. You're looking around at the world, you feel like, you're losing control, the whole world is losing control. Uh, I'm just going to tell you this morning that it's okay. It's okay. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. 
My kingdom's not part of this world. It comes from another place. And if you want to participate in it, he invites you to participate in it. But it means you have to follow him. You have to follow him to the cross. You have to crucify your flesh, your desires, your need to be right, your need to be in charge. And say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I want to experience your life today. I invite you to stand. Um, And maybe some of you have never made that decision for Jesus to be your king. And I would invite you, uh, and I would encourage you that that journey actually can start today in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of disorientation. Those things can actually be a beautiful reminder. You can hear the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you're not in control. This is just a reminder that you're not God. This return of nature that you're all experiencing, it's because you're not God. So just to remind you, uh, but I am, and take heart because I've overcome the world. And so he invites you and he invites me to give our lives to him, to live for him. So that no matter what's happening on in the world that we see, we can actually be citizens of an eternal world. So Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have inaugurated a kingdom that is not of this world, that will endure for eternity, that we get to participate in today. Lord, uh, forgive us and save us from the sin of thinking that the problem is out there. It's always somebody else. It's always some other country. It's always some other system. It's it's always, uh, we just need more technology. We just need to... Lord, those are all lies that we've convinced ourselves of. And we recognize again this morning the truth, Lord, that what we need is actually to be saved from ourselves. What we need is to crucify our flesh. What we need is actually to realize who is king and start to live in light of that. And so Jesus, again, maybe for the hundredth time, maybe for the first time, we bend our knee to you as king and we just acknowledge that we want to live in your kingdom. That we look around and we do not see any other options but to be a part of your kingdom. And so would we take heart and recognize that yes, we experience trouble, but the story isn't over and that you have overcome the world. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's interesting if you look at if you look at history, um, the times where the church has flourished and multiplied and revival has happened has often been the places and times in history where there's been the most war and chaos and disruption going on. Uh, and it's amazing how that happens. And I mean, I don't have the answers to all of that, but I wonder if, if part of the reason that happens is because. It's in times of disorientation and chaos that we are less likely to believe the lies of the world. That we've been actually forced to detach ourselves from whatever gospel the world is telling us and we become more open to the gospel of Christ. And so as much as it maybe breaks our heart and we we grieve and we suffer and we uh, long for heaven to come to earth uh, at times like this, Uh, There is an opportunity in it for us to be reminded 
uh, of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, of the reality that God's kingdom is not of this world. Uh, as we were singing that last song, I was just struck by the lyrics. Uh, I see heaven invading this place. I see angels praising your holy name. Uh, I see glory falling. I see hope, restored healing. I, uh, and if we're honest, it's hard to sing those words because they're like, I, yeah, I'm not sure I see that. Uh, and I'm reminded again that we are called to open the eyes of our hearts. We're actually called to look at this world from the perspective of faith. And in Hebrews 11, it says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. As a follower of Jesus, we are actually invited to look at the world through the lens of faith, not through what is, but through what is going to happen, through what God is doing, through the, through the kingdom of heaven, which we know what is all about that's invading earth. And so we don't just look with flesh eyes. We don't just look with our human eyes. We actually look with spiritual eyes. And we live as citizens of that future kingdom today. We live with that perspective today. And that begins to inform how we live, the choices we make, how we respond to conflict and pain, and how we respond to what's happening in our world. We live from a place of faith. So, Father, we just, again, thank you for the kingdom of heaven. We thank you uh, in, in the midst of all the disappointment and disorientation and questions that many people have had over many different things in the last couple of years, uh, that in the midst of that, there's also the opportunity to recognize what is real, what is true, that our eyes actually begin to be opened again, that we recognize maybe lies that we didn't, intentionally buy into, but that we started to live in. So Lord, we thank you that you save us from our flesh, that you save us from the enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, where we see his effects all over our planet right now. We thank you that that is not the last word again, and so we choose to have eyes of faith. We choose to believe in a world that is yet not seen with our human eyes. And we choose to actually follow you to the cross, we choose to mimic you today, anticipating the resurrection, anticipating your full kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. And we look forward to that day. But Lord, give us faith in the present. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen. Thank you for coming. Uh, there'll be prayer teams available at the front. We'd love to pray for you or available online if you email prayer at sunwestchurch.com. Uh, we'll see you next week.